This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. You also get access to ad-free versions of the podcast. Last week, we released a sample on the main feed of what we're up to over in the bonus feed via a roundtable discussion of various streaming services and how they serve or don't serve fans of film. And there's more on the way. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with... Tasha Robinson. And Scott Tobias. Genevieve is currently wandering around aimlessly, having last been spotted eating a watermelon she found on the ground, but she'll be back soon. We're happy in her stead to welcome an old friend of the show, music critic Stephen Hyden, whose writing can be found regularly at Uproxx and whose latest book, This Isn't Happening, explores the creation and impact of Radiohead's Kid A. He's also, and this is especially relevant to this episode, a contributor to the upcoming HBO documentary, Woodstock 99, Peace, Love, and Rage. Hello, Stephen. Hey, everyone. It's an uh, honor and a thrill to be here. Yes, a, a stranger we've never, who we've never spoken to ever before. Uh, I think long-time listeners will know that uh, we worked with uh, Mr. Hyden back at the AV Club, and he and I worked together at Uprox for a while. We're still in kind of a liminal space when it comes to theaters reopening. For this pairing, we chose a movie that's playing in theaters, but also available on a major streaming service. And really, if this week's pairing suggests anything, is that music is best appreciated with a crowd if you are comfortable going to theaters. Uh, Keith, I, I just I'm going to interrupt you. I just I want to jump in here. I just finished watching the classic movie in this pairing, and I, I really want to talk about how much I enjoyed Bob Dylan's performance. Um, what what are you talking about, Tasha? Dylan didn't play Woodstock. It's, it's kind kind of famous that he didn't play Woodstock. Uh, yeah, he did. He opened with Joker Man, and uh, and he closed with It Ain't Me, Babe. It was great. He played between Porno for Pyros and uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers. Are you sure you watched the right movie? Yeah, absolutely. There was a big rainstorm in the middle of it. Yeah, that's right. And it got really muddy. That's correct. And then the crowd pelted Primus with mud and Les Claypool got really mad. I have no idea what you watched, Tasha, but it was not 
Woodstock. I'm pretty sure it was. Tom Arnold did the funny stage announcements. Blues Traveler was a highlight. Woodstock 94. What? She's talking about Woodstock 94. It was held 25 years after the original Woodstock. It mixed original performers from the like 60s festival like Joe Cocker with contemporary acts like Cypress Hill. Uh, I think she got mixed up and watched footage from that show instead. Okay, I'm pretty sure you're making this whole Woodstock 94 thing up. I don't remember anything like that happening. But um, let's put all this aside. Scott, can I trust you to tell us what we're actually watching on this week's pairing? I certainly can. Uh, In this set of episodes, we're looking at two concert films set against the backdrop of the summer of 1969. First up, we'll discuss Woodstock, Michael Wadley's landmark document of the Woodstock Festival held between August 15th and 18th on the grounds of an upstate New York dairy farm. Released less than a year after the concert, Woodstock became essential viewing for anyone who wished they could be at the show or just wanted to know what the event was all about. By contrast, the new documentary Summer of Soul, or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised, revisits a musical event that received little national attention at the time, a six-week concert series held in Harlem that featured everyone from Mahalia Jackson to Stevie Wonder to Sly and the Family Stone. Making his directorial debut, musician Amir Questlove Thompson draws from hours of never-seen concert footage and interviews with those who attended and performed at the show to figure out what it all meant. So this week we'll file past the non-existent ticket counters of Woodstock to relieve the festival everyone's heard about for years. Then next week we'll head to the streets of New York to check out one we probably should have known just as well. For those of you who have forgotten, for those of you who haven't forgotten, and for those of you who never knew. By the time we got to Woodstock. Woodstock, an incredible film about an incredible event, is back. Man, there's supposed to be a million and a half people here by tonight. Can you dig that? It's really amazing. It looks like some kind of uh, biblical, epical, unbelievable scene. Woodstock, with a cast of a half a million outrageously friendly people. Do you want me to explain it in plain English? It's a dirty mess. In the 1971 film The Omega Man, an adaptation of the Richard Matheson novel I Am Legend, Charlton Heston plays the last man on Earth, or close enough anyway. The rare survivor of a global conflict that escalated into biological warfare, he spends his nights cowering in fear of the vampire-like monstrosities that the conflict created and his days trolling through a desolate Los Angeles. He settled into a routine, one that involves repeatedly visiting an empty movie theater and watching Woodstock, a film documenting a music festival that drew upwards of 400,000 attendees. It's a vision of a world Heston's character knows he'll never see again, one that, for at least three days, carved out a utopian space however muddy, and filled it with music and communion. But even by the time of the Omega Man's release, that vision was starting to look a little hazy, if it ever really existed at all. One of the great strengths of Michael Wadley's Woodstock is that it plays like a film that wants to buy into the utopian myth of the Woodstock Festival, the ones expressed by its impresarios and the true believers in attendance, but needs to be convinced. It opens with long scenes showing the immense effort required to put on a show of this size and closes with almost apocalyptic images of the garbage left behind, images that play against Crosby, Stills, and Nash's version of the Joni Mitchell song Woodstock that plays in context like a bittersweet commemoration of a moment that's already passed. But what a moment. 
While this film contains voices of doubt and opposition, mostly from nearby residents concerned about the freak show that's landed on their doorstep, but also captures the openness and cooperation that made the concert a stand-in for everything that was right about the 60s counterculture. Though a couple of freakouts get immortalized, and I'm still left wondering if one of the interview subjects ever found her sister, everyone gets fed, inhibitions get shed with no apparent consequences, earnest young people talk about alternate lifestyles that seem to work just fine for them, and the music plays all day and all night with the occasional interruption for rain. Still, a certain amount of ambiguity finds its way into the film anyway. The song Younger Generation, delivered by an extremely stoned John Sebastian, imagines a fairly grim-sounding future in which even the Woodstock generation would be shocked by their kids' behavior. One concertgoer's conviction that the clouds are being seeded by the enemies of freedom suggests the paranoia beneath the peace and love surface. Some of the editing, performed by a team headed by Thelma's schoonmaker that included her longtime collaborator Martin Scorsese, can be read a couple of different ways. The scene is Swami Satchadananda saying, the time has come for America to help the world with spirituality, cuts immediately to the throwback act Shanana performing at the hop. Is the film suggesting that rock and roll was America's spiritual contribution to the world, or is it anticipating nostalgia that would soon creep into the music? It's a film that tells a story from beginning to end, but also one that's not sure what its story means. Is a true Woodstock slaying the family stone encouraging a rapt crowd to go higher in seemingly ever sense of the word? Or Jimi Hendrix playing a version of the Star Spangled Banner that captured the turmoil of the times? Woodstock can still be found in some theaters when Hendrix and Janis Joplin died in the fall of 1970. There will be no going back to the garden a second time, despite attempts, some disastrous, to recreate the concert at various anniversaries. It happened, then it ended. Wadley's film lets us draw our own conclusions about what it all meant. So, everyone, well, what's your history with this film? I'll start with our guest, Stephen Hyden. I feel like I probably first saw this when I was either in high school or like early in college. And I was really, you know, first starting to investigate rock history. I remember that AMC used to have this thing on Fourth of July weekend where they would show a bunch of rock films over the course of like the Fourth of July weekend. Uh, and they would always show Woodstock. So I remember like watching Woodstock a bunch of times during that. And I think like VH1 would show Woodstock a bunch of times. Mm-hmm. So like I, you know, I've seen this movie many, many times and it definitely informed my view of like what the sixties were and like what certain bands of that era were, especially like the who Sly and the family stone, Jimi Hendrix, like they were the big ones that really jumped out from there. And it really wasn't until later that I began to realize the things that were left out of the movie. I mean, I think the movie itself, I I should just say this up front, I think it's a great film. But as journalism, I think it's pretty suspect. Uh, Mm. And maybe we want to get into that later. But as a film and as myth-making, it is like one of the cornerstone films, I think, of like the rock canon. Yeah, I, I, saw, I saw it. I know I saw it for the first time in high school because I took a class my senior year called the 60s and the 70s and I had a fairly permissive teacher who showed the film to it. I think it showed us the whole thing. And I've seen it several times since then. The, the, we should clarify also, we're talking about the director's cut, which is considerably longer than the theatrical cut that was around for years. It's almost four hours long. I, although, I, and I think they even swap out some interview footage for different interview footage. It, 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 is, it does seem to me like a substantially different cut of the film. Scott, how about you? 
Yeah, you know, I don't know if I've seen, I've certainly not had not seen the director's cut, and I'm not sure that I saw ever saw Woodstock as a sustained experience. I think I saw it in more in bits and in pieces over the years rather than as as one full complete in, in, in any time. I don't think there was any time I actually just sat down and watched all of Woodstock. Um, mm. So uh, it was kind of exciting to to kind of see it in its full form here, and um, it is a great film. I mean, in in of course. Of course, we have to think about the things that are not included in it, which I'm sure, which you know, Steve Steve's going to be more of an expert on than I. But what is in it, I think, shows a great deal of artistry and, and, and integrity in its own way. I, I like that it eschews all of the things you like, expect from a conventional documentary. There's obviously there no talking heads. There's not even like you know identifiers <laughs> in terms of like who the names of the you know the people speaking or singing like n- none of that is given uh, and i like that i like the, I, I kind of like that it, it left all of, a lot of those things out and and i just of course you think about an event like this and and um compared to today i mean that's all you can do it's got to compare that, that experience to i mean woodstock 99 of course but i mean but but anything afterwards and just think about how do you get that many people together in an event that isn't corporate mediated, that that does have a certain amount of, I don't know, idealism embedded within it. I mean, whether those ideals are are were shattered or, or false in some way. I mean, in some way they aren't. In some way they plainly aren't. And, and the evidence of it is is on on the screen. I think so. Uh, you know, and I, and I like that we take that it takes its time to show us a lot of other. You know, the you know all of the lead up to the first song you know the building of the of the sets you know the locals as, as the uh as the young people are are invading their space you know and then and then throughout the concert just you know the you know just the footage of of what people look like and what they were doing and how they were dressed or undressed and you know and and of course the the aftermath of the of the thing where you know i guess it would have been during hendrix's set where there were there are very few people left and a lot of just garbage and and waste uh you know very suggestively left in the in the wake it's an incredible document you know and and also it's got some you know not some good performances in it <laughs> right good good music here and there there's some there's some good music in it, yeah. That's right. I, I, you're right too. I I love the the Richie Havens and that it takes so long and it feels like a really good start to that show. The kind of like easing it in with sort of this, this acoustic but urgent folk music uh, from a really uh, charismatic performer. Um, oh, actually, Tasha, how about you? What's your, what's your issue with this film? I saw this film for the first time uh, a year ago. My husband wanted to watch it for his birthday, and he knew I'd, I'd never seen it and that I was reluctant to because I'm not a big uh, concert film person. I can find it kind of difficult sometimes to sit still for musical performances on film. Um, and I often find them gratifying when when I try them, but there's just there's a certain reluctance there, especially when you're dealing with a four hour project that feels like it's leached its way into the culture to a, a degree like I, I felt I knew what I was getting. Like, I don't I don't remember a time in my life when I hadn't heard uh, Jimi Hendrix's version of Star Spangled Banner like. Like Scott, I'd seen bits and pieces of this movie. I I felt it was kind of culturally ubiquitous. Uh, And I felt like I'd seen it before I'd seen it. But like 
three minutes into the movie, I was sold on it. You know, I, I sat down reluctantly thinking, all right, you know, here we go for four hours. And three hours later, I was like, I, I got to pee and then we got to get straight <laughs> back into this. So, I mean, it's, it's just, it's kind of mesmerizing. And I think a lot of that is because so much contextualization is done, at least in terms of setting up the scene, setting up the experience, uh, the, the beforehand, problems and solutions that that went into constructing it and uh, people's attitudes there really is a kind of you are there feeling to it that isn't just about the music or about the concert or even about the audience that's about the era and trying to place the event and all of these individuals within the era and i kind of love the rawness of it you know you you can get from all of this footage of the audience that there are times that a lot of people are just are drugged out of their minds or have are, you know bordering on heat stroke are groggy because they've been trying to stay up for 48 hours straight in order to not miss all of the acts like there it isn't you watch something like martin scorsese's shine a light and you just get the impression that like everybody there is completely turned into the music at all times. You just you don't get shots of people who are tuned out or <laughs> have dropped out and turned off because they're, you know, exhausted and weary. It just it feels electric. And this doesn't feel electric. It feels like my experiences with Lollapalooza felt where everybody is excited to be there, but also overheated and and smelly and very, very tired. And there's no place clean to lie down and everything kind of smells. So this film is just a hell of an experience. And that's even before you get into just how mesmerizing some of the performances are. I do wish there was more of the kind of contextualization that Scott was talking about not being there. Like, I would watch the pop-up video version of this uh, movie that just has like little bugs popping up on the the screen to say, by the way, Crosby, Stills and Nash, uh, they went on it at 4 a.m. <laughs> that's that's why it's dark. This is not, you know, headline prime time at, at 8 p.m. or 10 p.m. or whatever. It's four in the morning. Or, you know, when, when Richie Havens is doing that intense uh, performance of freedom, I was just reading that... Uh, he was basically told to vamp for like three hours because of the act that hadn't shown up. And he had gone through his repertoire. And when he was singing that song, he was more or less making it up from remembered songs from his youth. And that's why it's kind of a bunch of parts stuck together. Uh, but he really throws energy into that that performance for somebody who's been on stage at that point, apparently for hours with not necessarily an end in sight. Like all of these little factoids, the more you look into Woodstock, like the richer it gets as a document. And that's saying something for something that's already so rich as a document. I think it also, it really helps that this is, you know, a piece of filmmaking that it is constructed with, you know, rhythms and sort of ideas of how it wants to proceed at a certain point. And obviously it's, it's people shooting stuff on the fly, but there's some really artful compositions in this and it is edited beautifully by 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 schoonmaker's team and this i i'm into the split screen stuff it quickly became yeah. a, a cliche for concert films um and just sort of early 70s filmmaking in general but but um i think it really puts things in a, in a i want to say from a different perspective and and uh, uh which seems a little too on the nose but i guess that's more or less what i'm saying yeah i mean there's a uh you know a verite quality to this film that like you when you watch mm -hmm. it you feel like you're actually there and i think that was 
a big part of the power of this film that obviously there were a lot of people that attended the original Woodstock, but many more people experienced this festival through the film. And really it's because of the film, I think that this festival has been valorized to the degree that it has been. And the film is so seductive with the filmmaking that it's very easy to just take this film at face value that this is exactly how it was, that there's nothing that's left out, and that if you weren't at the festival, you just have to watch this movie, and it's like you were really there. And as seductive as the filmmaking is, and again, like I, I think it's great filmmaking, that is a mistake, I think, that a lot of people have made with Woodstock, because there's actually a lot that's left out of this film that you don't see like the dark side. I think of this festival, for instance, that you really don't get a sense of unless you like read books about the festival and you read, for instance, about the many near disasters that happened behind the scenes that were like just narrowly averted and were basically caused by the very poor planning that went into this festival. Because to me, like it's very fascinating to compare this film to like, give me shelter for instance, like, cause people always love to talk about Woodstock being sort of the peak of this communal idea of like what the sixties idea was that like we could, it's the gathering of the tribes. We can all get together and, and with all this chaos, we can still be peaceful and enjoy all this great music and nothing wrong is going to happen. And then you contrast it with, with Altamont and it seemed like everything went to hell with Altamont, but I actually feel like the gap between Woodstock and Altamont is much narrower than is what is popularly perceived. And the reason why we perceive these things differently is because of what was captured on film. You know, like people died at Woodstock. There was a guy that was run over by a tractor because he passed out in the field nearby the stage. Another person died of a drug overdose. There were riots at the original Woodstock. The army had to like airlift supplies into the original Woodstock because it was such a mess. And it was, it was declared a disaster area because it was such a mess. And we don't think of those things with Woodstock because a camera crew didn't capture the guy being run over by the tractor. You know, we didn't see that. And it's not the same as like when we watch Gimme Shelter, for instance, like where you can see Meredith Hunter being stabbed to death by Hell's Angels. But it's like if he had happened to be killed maybe 100 feet like farther back from the stage where cameras couldn't see him, would we think of Altamont differently? You know, it's very interesting to look at these events as events, but also as films and how the film and the cinematic experience has really a, like influenced how we remember these events to a very, I think, strong degree. Because Woodstock, as much as it's a music festival, it's also a film. And I think ultimately people remember it as a film more than as an event. You raise an interesting point about like what gets shown and what doesn't get shown. You know, and this, and this may just be a matter of selective editing too, but you watch Gimme Shelter and it feels that feels like a disaster from the start. Like, you know, uh, there's there's a fair amount of freakouts captured in, in Woodstock, but not that many. It seems like everyone was on all the wrong drugs at Altamont. Uh, and just the vibe through that whole film is filled with dread. You don't get that here. But I think you raise an interesting point in that it's what's shown, but also 
that could have been Woodstock if the dice had just kind of rolled a different way. You know, if if a few th- more things had had gone wrong, um, amidst all the other things that, that did go wrong, you know, who knows how we would be remembering Woodstock. And you're right. I mean, there were many near disasters at Woodstock that didn't come to pass because they just got lucky. But I, I think it's worth remembering that with with the Woodstock film, you know, the the organizers of the festival you know, didn't make any money. In fact, they lost a ton of money. Like when, you know, just, just from the festival, because, you know, they initially planned to charge admission to the festival, but like there was, there was tons of gate crashers. And at some point it was decided that this was just going to be a free festival. And it was just like, come one, come all. Uh, and the, really the only way that the organizers had to make money was from the film and from the soundtrack. And, I really think that with the film, and Michael Wadley has talked about this. There's a there's a really interesting interview that he did on Charlie Rose. I think it was in '99, like for the 30th anniversary, where you know Michael Wadley was very deliberate about crafting this film, not explicitly as propaganda, but like you know, like when you watch the beginning of the film, you know, you hear that Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Young cover of the Joni Mitchell song Woodstock, talking about going back to the garden. And as you said before, they spent a lot of time showing the beginning of the festival, like building the stages and in this very sort of bucolic surroundings. And I did an interview once with this uh, professor from Berkeley named Gina Arnold, who used to be a music critic. Uh, and she wrote a book about um, music festivals. And she was talking about the beginning of Woodstock and it was she had very insightful comments about it. And she was she was likening it to almost like a like an old-time western at the beginning of Woodstock that obviously it takes place in the east but she was likening it to almost this like manifest destiny type imagery at the beginning like in, in the American West that like we're building something new out of nature you know like a new society and how there's this thing in Woodstock where it's a depiction of like the counterculture but there's also something very American about the imagery at the beginning of the movie that you have these shirtless, hippies, very strapping looking young men building a stage out of nothing, out of the ground. And, you know, there's something very inspiring about that and how the film really plays on that in the beginning that like we're building a new society in a way at the beginning of the film. And I really feel like there's like a lot of imagery in the movie that is, it's very aspirational and it's very inspirational and it's meant to uplift you. And because of the things that they don't show, they don't like, just imagine this movie. If uh, they had spent time with two of the big organizers of the festival, it was uh, John Roberts and uh, Joel Rosenman. Because you see Michael Lang in the movie a lot, who uh, is this very kind of boyish looking guy. He ends up being a player in the, in the other Woodstocks that happened later on in the 90s. But like at the actual festival, like he wasn't really in charge of the festival. He was like basically partying with the bands. Uh, you know, like he wasn't really like doing anything. It was like these other guys, John Roberts and Joel Roseman. They were the people that were sort of like stage managing the festival and dealing with all of the problems that were happening. Like imagine if the camera crews were, were with those guys during the movie like there was one moment during the festival like where they had like a really serious problem with like the electrical system where there was a big rainstorm that happened and they had to basically reroute a bunch of the electrical wires elsewhere or else they were going to risk basically having a mass electrocution at the festival and instead of stopping the festival and cutting the power they basically just like let the music play on 
and they gambled that they were able to like reroute the electricity at the last second and to avoid electrocuting like tens of thousands of people. Like that was like just like one near disaster that happened at Woodstock 69. You know, you don't hear about that in the movie, but like if you had had cameras on those guys, you know, it would have been a much different movie. So like, like that aspect of it, I just find very like fascinating. Like, Cause again, like I love the Woodstock movie as it is, but like when you know the background of it, it does reveal some of the more, I guess, like propagandist aspects of the film, I think. I mean, I think there's a ton of of really interesting stuff that went on that isn't covered in the scope of the film. And I mean, at the point where you get to four hours and there's still so much untold story, you just maybe this could have been a uh, a 30 hour documentary. Like, who knows? But I think prioritizing the music over delving into every problem that happened at the festival is the right choice for, uh, you know, for historians, basically, for for people who care about culture and music. There could be an entire separate uh, documentary made specifically about choices made and compromises made and whatnot. But I, I don't think this film feels like a Woodstock propaganda film, like a, a propaganda film for the Woodstock experience. I feel like that, like playing the polished studio Woodstock song at the beginning and seeing kind of how what the what the myth making became and then contrasting it with this very clearly problem ridden uh things went wrong uh it was hot and tired and tiring and sweaty it was disorganized like all of these facts that do come up in the film on top of everything else like yeah they could have spent a lot more time in the medical tent i was reading that uh more than 2500 people were treated in the medical tent because of cut feet uh, mm. because of all the, the garbage on the ground like yeah there could be a whole movie about medicine at woodstock but would that movie be interesting to watch compared with you know seeing some of these acts at their the height of their powers trying to make the best out of uh having to play at five in the morning after waiting for 12 hours to go on i think in a lot of ways this is the movie that's more interesting to history but i don't think it's selling a myth i i think that woodstock itself maybe the song is selling a myth maybe the understanding that people have of what woodstock was is the myth that's been sold but to me this movie is like no, if you were on the ground, it was actually really terrible in a lot of ways for the organizers made a lot of wrong choices and, and things went wrong and we made the best of it. But it feels like the, the aspirational aspects you're talking about to me are like, if we all hang out and agree to be groovy together, other people will come and feed us because we're incapable of feeding ourselves. Like that doesn't feel aspirational. That feels like, you know, hey, man, the, the hippie commune thing can totally work as long as somebody else is available to bail us out because of the mistakes we made. If anything, I think there's a humorous aspect to how much goes wrong at Woodstock and how much they have to rely on the organizers and eventually the military to kind of pull them out of their their slough of, of mud and sickness and overdoses and poor septic planning and, and all of those other things. Yeah, I think, and I get this into, you know, I kind of got this into the intro, I, I, and it may just be specific perspective of time but you can you can see the problems not just with woodstock but with the whole 
counterculture thing creeping in, like 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 that really paranoid guy about how the government's trying to shut him down. The couples they interview that are kind of like in open relationships. It doesn't, you know, you don't see a lot of conviction in their eyes. This is something that they're going to be that it's going to last for them. A lot of really kind of questionable spirituality and a lot of really kind of annoying psycho like that psychodrama troupe at the beginning. <laughs> it's like it's like the last thing I'd ever want to watch. You know, I don't know how much of that's conscious. You know, half the filmmakers are just sort of like was just there and was captured, and how much of it was just you know we know the we're not living in a post-Woodstock utopia of freedom and, and openness today. But I think it's a fascinatingly ambiguous film in, in many ways, although I think you're right that it did definitely sell Woodstock, I mean, literally as a, as a product that you could go to a movie theater uh, and watch or go to a record store and buy for a long time. I think we should probably talk about it as a musical experience, too, because I, I know that one line on Woodstock was always like the least interesting thing about it was the music. I've heard some people say that. There are a lot of really great performances captured in this film. What is your, just, just as a, as a musical experience we'll, we'll start with steve well, what's your take on this on this uh on this film as a musical document yeah i mean i think that because of the epic nature of this film and how sweeping it is and and i imagine like i've never seen it on the big screen but i imagine like in a movie theater it would be even more all-encompassing where it you know you've got like the widescreen, you know, like the 235 aspect nature of it. You got like the, the split screen. Sometimes it's like triple screen. I, I don't know if that's the proper terminology, but it's a dazzling film to watch in many ways. And whoever said that the music is the least interesting aspect of it, I, I, I don't subscribe to that at all. I mean, especially if you're looking at the peak musical performances of it, which I would say are certainly the Sly and the Family Stone set, the Who, uh, the Santana set, uh, and Jimi Hendrix. And even though like Jimi Hendrix, you could argue it's like on Monday morning, he seems like a little exhausted during that, but it's still pretty amazing. It's still Jimi Hendrix in 1969. He's playing the Star Spangled Banner. You know, it's, it's about as iconic as you can get in rock history. It, you know, not to keep pushing back against what some of you guys are saying, but I, I really do feel like whatever ambiguity is expressed about the counterculture in some of the interviews in the film is ultimately obliterated by just the epic scale of the film and like how overwhelming just the scale of the movie is and like these musical performances, like how dazzling they are. I mean, I and, and really, I think the ultimate testimony to that is the stature that Woodstock even now still has in American history. I mean, I, it's still the most iconic music festival of all time. And I would attribute that almost entirely to the film. I mean, there have been other great music festivals, but like none of them have a film document as profound as Woodstock, the film. And I think that really sold the film not just to the hippie generation, but to subsequent generations, you know, people that have watched this movie in reruns over the years, you know, yeah, you can, you can watch the whole movie and you can see some of the characters that emerge from the audience and, and feel like, well, I don't know what's going to happen with this person or like, like some of the attendees you feel like are uh, maybe a, a little misguided or, or, or lost as individuals, but just the power of this event overall. Uh, that comes from the music, I think is so 
palatable. And even with all the problems that take place, I think people ultimately felt like, well, it still turned out okay in the end. And the problems kind of add to the romance of the event. You know, it doesn't detract from the event. Again, like, I think the Gimme Shelter, you know, counterexample is, is so telling because that movie, it's such an interesting compare and contrast about, like, what the filmmakers were intending in each case and the footage that they had in each case. And not that Altamont was this great event or anything. I think that was obviously a tragedy. But, like, there is a scenario, like, where the filmmakers didn't get the kind of footage that they got with Gimme Shelter, like where they didn't capture Hell's Angels beating people with pull cues or like stabbing Meredith Hunter. Like if they didn't get that stuff, maybe Ultima wouldn't be remembered the same way that we remember it now. I mean, I, I just think there was a lot of chaos in both events. There's also like a lot, there's a lot of great music. I, at, just, at, I don't, I'm not sure where you're, where you're getting the feeling that the, this film doesn't capture the chaos. Like there is definitely, I, I never saw the theatrical cut of Woodstock, but I could absolutely see a cut of this movie that just shows the stage going up and the, the crowd assembling and then focuses on the music with a handful of interviews about people just being like, it's awesome. Peace and love baby. And, and that's all there is that would give you an impression that this was a, a 100% successful counterculture event that just, that brought everybody together in a spirit of of perfect harmony and freely giving away culture and that everybody loved every moment of it like i i think what we get is a very raw document about a lot of things that went wrong i'm just saying if you watch the film you would never know that people died at woodstock you would never know that there were riots at woodstock you wouldn't know about many of the negative things that happened at woodstock yeah there's these chaotic things that happen in the film that are depicted, but it's ultimately, I think, shown as something that's overcome. Whereas I think the reality of it was a little more complex than that. that that's just the argument I would make. And I would also say that in the case of Gimme Shelter, that the negative things that happen at that festival are, are much more in the foreground than they are in the Woodstock film. I think that's true, but I, I think your issue here is with Gimme Shelter, I think, more than uh, more than Woodstock, ultimately. I mean, I don't have an issue with Woodstock as a film. I'm just, I'm, I'm talking about it as like a journalistic point of view. This is also colored by me being involved in this Woodstock 99 documentary, because I think that, you know, like, like for instance, like I interviewed John Sher, who is one of the organizers of Woodstock 99. And he didn't go to the original Woodstock. He had tickets to go, but he did. He couldn't get there because of the big traffic jam, essentially, that, that was taking place there. But he told me that he watched the film and he thought that this was like the greatest thing in the world. Like, why wouldn't you want to be at something like this? This is like so glorious. And I feel like with Woodstock 99, a lot of the organizational shortfalls that happened at that festival were directly influenced by the original festival because there was this idea that because this is Woodstock, that you don't need a great infrastructure, that you can like, <laughs> you can just do whatever you want because Woodstock is this sort of magical brand. And that if you have the Woodstock brand on you, then it'll be okay. I mean, the thing with like the original Woodstock is that like, you know, they were at one location 
And then like at the last minute, they had to move to another location. Like it was the planning of it were it was totally insane, especially compared to like modern music festivals where like Coachella, for instance, it's always at the same place every year. They always have the same staff every year. They're not moving to a different farm field every year and throwing a festival in the manner of the original Woodstock. But I think there was this idea that like, well, because this is Woodstock and it's, you know, the original, you know, like Michael Lang was involved in the original Woodstock. He's in involved in Woodstock 94 and 99, that things will just kind of fall into place because get people in the field and they'll all get along and, and no matter what hardships happen, it'll be okay. And I think that was influenced in part by the impression created by the film. I, I think they just saw a completely different film than I saw. I mean, I, I don't know. The the four-hour Woodstock cut gives me an impression of like fire festival level hmm. disorganization and, and disaster. I just... My, my question for you, Tasha, would you would you want to be there? Oh, hell no. No, see, that's, oh, that's no. the... Not even, that, not even that's slightly. That's the thing. I, 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 this is kind of where I'm with... Steve a little bit. <laughs> yeah, but Scott, you 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 don't like uh, being an outdoor anything. I, I obviously I wouldn't want to be there, but that 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 would not want to be in any of these things. But I think that the idea was, you know, if you miss the festival, you could see Woodstock, and that would be your experience of it. And I think the experience of of watching Woodstock is that you missed out on something pretty cool and pretty one of a kind, and 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 something that overall, as messy as it was, was an expression of community and of of uh of peace and of of you know idealism and, and kind of the counter the counterculture coming together maybe in a way that's messy but is authentic i mean that that the interesting thing about woodstock if we're going to think about it as as propaganda is how it doesn't seem that way it, how how the filmmaking is is verite style in the same way that gimme shelter is it, it does have that same it's not slick it's not like pepsi presents Woodstock. It's it's like the, the you know this is Maisel's level verite f- filmmaking in turn you know and, and like I said before the, without the uh, you don't get the talking heads you don't get the titles you, you know it's very I mean you know and of course and you've got this world class filmmaking team behind it but ultimately it is selling you the, the 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 music and it's selling you the the idea of Woodstock and it's giving you a vision of Woodstock and I think that vision of Woodstock is probably true it's just incomplete i i think it's impossible it would have been impossible to make a a a film uh a complete film about about woodstock because we're talking about uh, a community that came together of four hundred thousand people over three days um where how are you going to catch everything i mean how are you going to catch and be somebody run over by a tractor and and, and, and somebody being run over by a tractor is that really how much weight do you put on an image like that in terms of the overall scope of the festival? So it's like, you you know, this is a, you know, the, the, what they chose is, a, is, I think, probably certainly a vision of the festival that the people throwing the festival would have improved, approved of quite <laughs> forcefully. Um, and whether it's true or not, I think it's, it's only just a, it's an incomplete picture. And, and I think we, we have to keep in mind all of the caveats that uh, Steve has expressed here. Again, I think this is great filmmaking. I think you watch the film film it's very engaging it immerses you in the experience you feel like you're there it's a testament to the power of the film that even when it's showing negative aspects of woodstock that 
it romanticizes those aspects. I, I, I and, and look, all I would say is if we're debating about whether this movie glamorizes Woodstock, just look at the stature that Woodstock has in our culture. Uh, again, it's still the most romanticized music festival in rock history. And it's romanticized, I would say, primarily because of this film. Again, it's a testament to the power of the filmmaking. And I, and I think you know, this is something that people talk about in all aspects of cinema, that whenever in, in, like in a cinematic situation, like when you show negative behavior or negative consequences, because of the power of the medium, it can't help but make it look cool, you know, or make it look like something you'd want to be a part of, that you're going, that these people in this field, that they're going through all these hardships, but they're also seeing this bitchin' Who concert. They're seeing this amazing Sly Stone concert. You know, there's, I think there's an element of that where people for generations have watched it and they felt like, I wish I was in that field. Like, it, yeah, maybe it was tough, but like, man, like what a great story that would have been. I mean, it just, it, as with everything in cinema, it depends on who you are and what you bring to it. I mean, Scott asked, would I have wanted to be there? And I, I look at that film and I say, no, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm real good with the cameras being up close and capturing just like intimately what, what it was like to be on stage and these, these performances that are so iconic. Keith asked way back when about our, our favorite performances. And for me, like, I love Crosby, Stills and Nash. They're, they've, been one of my favorite groups. I love their harmonies. Um, and I, I grew up on their music. And watching them do Sweet Judy Blue Eyes, even though it's not nearly as dynamic as so many of the, the other performances, even though there's so little movement, it almost feels intimate to be on stage with them. Uh, it's, it's just a very different experience. But like watching those familiar sounds come out of such unfamiliar faces uh, to me, you know, having having never watched footage of them when they were that young. Like, that's the iconic part of it for me. Not not the sense of community of uh, lying unwashed in the mud for three days. I look at uh, an experience like that, at a, a concert film like that, and I think I'm really grateful that somebody documented this because I can experience what Jimi Hendrix was like, you know, young and vital on stage not long at all before he died. And if that's, you know, romanticizing the era and romanticizing the music, I can I can live with that. I just don't see, for me personally, a whole ton of romanticizing of just the, the audience aspect of it. Like that, that part of it, to me, just kind of starts off very excited. And then you can feel the feeling that comes over you at a, a three-day event or a five-day event where you don't want to miss anything, but it just kind of drags on and drags on and drags on. I even feel that in some of the musical performances, which get very, very jam bandy and go on for a, for a long, long time, there are acts where I think I, you know, I'm glad I wasn't there for that four-hour set. I, I love the performance that we get from Richie Havens. I love the way it's shot. Like those low cameras looking up at him from below is just kind of devastating with the emotion he's throwing into it. But I'm glad I wasn't there watching him for three hours, kind of trying to to fill in time. I I think putting this together into an experience that you can sample without having to go through uh, all of the hardships of it is 
it's a boon to history and like talking about it like it's it's a lie it's a it's a big lie that's being foisted on us I, th- I think just i mean why not acknowledge just the archival value of having all of this yeah i mean i don't think it's an either or i mean i i wouldn't call it a big lie i would only i guess point out the things that are left out because this is a film that has been so mythologized as it is i mean as we talk about this movie you know, people sort of take this as the essential document of Woodstock. So I think to point out some of the things that are left out is only sort of filling in history. It's not to dismiss the power, again, that this film has as filmmaking. Because again, I think it's like, it's obviously like one of the great rock films ever made. And as a lover of, of, of music, I definitely appreciate the archival value of it. But I think it's worth noting the things that are left out because those things have had a real impact on history. And again, I'll, you know, I know this because I've, you know, working on the Woodstock 99 film, I, I, I do feel like there's a direct line between this film and what happened at that festival, because the nostalgia of this film and the power of it, I think it distorted history to a degree that just fooled people into thinking that you could recreate this and that it wasn't just a lucky one-off, that you could do it again because it was called Woodstock and you could do it the exact same way and it would be okay. And the fact is, is that that was not true, you know, and that had real life consequences 30 years after the fact. So I think that's an interesting postscript to this film. Not that I'm blaming the filmmaker for that, necessarily but just saying that like nostalgia sometimes has real life consequences and and that's worth examining after the fact well i I would kind of question two things if we're going to make that comparison though is i think that the two kind of big differences to me between this and woodstock 99 is is one a lack of mediation in this one of corporate mediation i mean it really feels it does have the feel of something you know perhaps disorganized but not uh, oppressive in that sense, or there's no expectation that, that uh, you know, this is not, again, Pepsi, pres- it's not Pepsi presents Woodstock. It, it feels a little more authentic than that. And the other thing too is I th- that I think is crucial is that I think the music ha- at the original Woodstock has a cohesive tone and message overall that is, that contributes to what, to the idea of what Woodstock is and what, and what they were focusing on you know, at that point in, in, in history. And I think that that the, the, the absence of that in the 99 version, uh, the presence of certain acts that were ugly and provocative in a, in a, in a way that was uh, brought out the absolute worst in people. I think that's kind of where they, they separate. One of the things that I, I was so moved about by in, in watching Woodstock now was, is that you did get a sense of, of real, freedom of, of people kind of wandering around and being there, you know, letting the freak flag fly or, or something in a way that felt like a little bit, a little gentler than, you know, what we would end up getting from every festival after <laughs> that. I mean, one thing I would say to that is that at the original Woodstock, there were people that set fire to food stands because they felt they were charging too much for food. There was, a, there was this group called the Up Against the Wall Motherfuckers. They were like a local activist group of the time that even in the context of the original Woodstock, they felt like that festival was too corporatized. 
mm-hmm. and you know charging too much for food and and then they rioted essentially and they burned down like a dozen food stands at the original woodstock and you don't see that in the movie which again like right. that's fine if you don't want to focus on that but just filling in that context of saying like well if you're going to say 99 was totally different well there were seeds of that at the original woodstock that we don't see in the movie that you know maybe that's worth knowing Again, like to me, again, like the movie and the festival are two different things, you know, and maybe that's something that we should delineate here that like the movie is its own thing and we can appreciate the movie as just a work of filmmaking. And then we can separate that from the actual event mm-hmm. and how we discuss that. And maybe that's a more helpful way of, of talking about this. So, but you know, if we're going to talk about the corporatization of the original Woodstock, the, the, like the reason why there were, like one thing I think is fascinating about Woodstock is that there was one Woodstock in the 60s and there were two Woodstocks in the 90s, you know, and it was because baby boomers wanted to recreate this thing from their childhood and foist it upon a new generation. And why did they want to do that? Well, because there was this mythology created about the original Woodstock and a lot of that has to do with the original, a lot of that has to do with the movie. And because Woodstock right. was not the only festival that happened in 1969. As a matter of fact, we're going to talk about Summer of Soul very soon. That was another great music festival that a lot of people didn't even know about until this year because it didn't have the same mythology built around it that Woodstock did. I mean, D- Dylan wasn't there because he's at the Isle of Wight Festival, which is was documented, but certainly it's less well known. Yeah, but than yeah, Woodstock. but there were there were many festivals in 1969 and many festivals that happened in the late 60s and, and early 70s that don't have the same amount of um, of publicity because because they didn't have a great filmmaker like Michael Wadley that made a film about them. That has a lot to do with why Woodstock was brought back not once but twice in the 90s that people were trying to recreate this thing and yeah there were corporate interests connected to the 90s versions but it was only because corporations recognized that this was like a brand that they could attach themselves to that it had value and the beginning of that is this film like this film made woodstock a brand let me ask you this just as a a theoretical i mean uh, like everybody but obviously uh Do you think that this would have more value either as a historical document or as a film or as a, just a, a music archivist's dream if it left out all of the contextualization, if we we never got more than a, a brief glimpse of the audience, if it was still four hours, but if they used all that time on fitting in the Grateful Dead or the band or Creedence Clearwater Revival, like all of these also iconic acts that just didn't make even the longest cut of the movie. What if this movie just consisted pretty much entirely of here's the the stage setting up and then just performance after performance after performance and then, uh, you know, some of the cars driving off? Like if it was if it was that simple, if there was no story to it, it was just about the music how would you feel about that version of the film i mean again i i want to say like i think the film was great like i you know and i feel like i'm sort of critic like I, I feel like i'm talking about the subtext of the film or the after effects of the film i really love the cinema verite quality of it i love that it delves into the culture of it you know and again i i would just separate the film from the event i think it's really hard when you 
have talented filmmakers and editors shooting something, it inevitably transforms into something else, you know, where it's not just this sort of dry transcription of the event. And like, who would really want that as a film? Like as a film, this is like a much, this is what you would want it to be to me. Like, it's just part of what's fascinating about this film is how it tra- how it transformed the event into something that maybe it wasn't quite what it was. And I don't know how you avoid that. This is like a larger question about documentaries in general, probably. Like, how do you avoid that conundrum? of not glamorizing something or not romantic, even if, because I agree with you that it shows a lot of the negative aspects of it. But I think because of the power of the filmmaking, it just makes it look like this sort of almost like religious experience that like you're going through the hardships because it's ultimately for a higher cause, you know? And I don't know how you avoid that if, if you're a talented filmmaker, it's just like part of the power of cinema. Scott, when you talked about the ugly acts that incited violence at Woodstock 99, you were talking about Brian Setzer Orchestra, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, what the hell is the name of that dance that they do? Uh, I even forgot the whole movement. Uh, yeah. Swing, swinger. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Swing, swing revival. Well, I, I do I do want to talk about music a little bit, not necessarily Brian Setzer Orchestra, uh, before we wind down this discussion of Woodstock. I will tell you what really stood out for me the first time I saw this and still really stands out to me, uh, which is Sly and the Family Stone, which I was not an act I don't, I've been that exposed to, uh, you know, I, I guess I had, had not quite moved from, from classic rock, which radio, which would never play Sly and the Family Stone, at least in, in my market to the oldies channel, which actually played them all the time. Uh, and seeing them live, you know, maybe I turned some of the songs before, but seeing them live was just a revelation to me. And, and like, well, I, I really do like uh, much of the music at Woodstock. There is a whole lot, like everything's kind of gravitating in the direction of canned heat. There's just a whole lot of like, yeah. like heavy blues rock, you know, <laughs> like even like Jeff- Jefferson Airplane sounds like they yeah. want to be canned heat. 10 years after wants to be canned heat. Uh, can't heat definitely wants to be can't heat. But sliding the family stone is just like this the psychedelic rainbow in the middle of all this. And and uh, uh just blew me away. I wish there was there's a, there's some bonus footage on the Blu-ray, uh, but not any additional Sliding the Family Stone thing. Although although it should probably just as a as a listener service, we should point out that a lot of this there's a big box set of recordings of Woodstock put out a few years ago that's been broken down into individual live sets. I don't know if there's physical releases, but certainly on streaming services, you can hear like the whole set. Uh, and Sign of Family Stone is one of them. Uh, Credence is on there, which, you know, Credence hated their performance and did not want to be in the film. If you listen to the set, I think it sounds pretty good, frankly. Oh, it's amazing. Some, the the yeah, CCR so set's great. Yeah, but you wouldn't want to lose. You wouldn't want to lose any canned heat for, for that. Whatever. <laughs> That's true. Shana, uh, no. Do you want to lose Shana? No. <laughs> I do like Shana's presence in there, but like that—that that to me is a standout among the standouts uh, at, at this uh, in this film. Um, how about you, Scott? See, no one has mentioned uh, Joe Cocker's with a little help from my mm. friends. Uh, that that to, that to me is is a really big highlight here. I I, I uh, it's just an incredible transformation of, of that song um i love the uh i love the the uh country joe mcdonald sing-along thing uh, and i lo- love the, the the whimsy of introducing the uh 
you know, the, the, the lyrics with the bubble that everybody can sing along. And I love to hear people in the crowd singing along as well. I mean, this is a, you know, um, this was an important moment in, in history and it felt like, again, everyone kind of coming together, uh, behind, uh, a message and, in in, in, fury and, and about, uh, what, what was happening in Vietnam. Um, I thought that was, uh, great um i'm with tasha and in, in, in really loving anything uh crosby stills and nash related uh, deja vu is one of my favorite albums ever uh, so uh i'm always happy to hear them harmonize and um yeah i mean i think everyone else has covered the rest of the <laughs> hi- highlights here um I, you know i certainly missed things that weren't there you know I, and of course i appreciate the style of uh, the choices that were made simple choices in terms of how to shoot it the, the where the camera was at it's almost it predates the whole talking heads thing that of staying on the stage i mean it really does stay on the stage once you get to the performances um you, you're really getting um a, a sustained blast of music and you're really getting a, a sense of of how powerful these performers were uh in this setting so uh yeah, that, that's me on the I would music. not lose that Shanana performance for anything just because, you know, you talk <laughs> about the the things that the movie leaves in and the things that it leaves out. To me, if without that that performance and it's it's kind of feeling of ridiculousness in the concert and the set list without it, though, you do get this sort of feeling of uh, kind of a primal utopian unity about Vietnam, about uh, the the mainstream culture, about the judgment that people are facing. You know, you've got Jimi Hendrix and Joan Baez and and Richie Havens and Arlo Guthrie and Country Joe, like all just spewing this this rage and anger that they want to do something with and trying to move move the audience. But that wasn't the entirety of 60s music. And you, you might almost believe that it was <laughs> watching certain parts of this uh, this documentary. And then Shanana kind of shows up and says, eh, you know, there's a lot going on right now. And, and this is popular, too. Let's do some of this. <laughs> It, it should be pointed out, though, that, that Bowser from Shanana is is a very politically active. Um, he's very um, <laughs> uh, he raises money for the DNC and is, is very uh, his big cause is expanding Social Security benefits to more people. So uh, you know, there's politics even to Shanana. Shout out to Bowser. Uh, Yes, exactly. Keep doing the good work, Bowser. Um, well, with that, we're going to talk about Woodstock uh, plenty more uh, next episode when we talk about Summer of Soul. But I think we'll wind down our uh, talk then, and we'll be right back after the break. Now it's time for feedback, where we answer any questions and respond to any comments about our episodes or anything else in the world of film. First up, we have a tweet raising a concern about our West Side Story episode we felt we should address. Tasha, can you read that one? Sure, it's brief. Kim writes, I'm listening to your episode on West Side Story, and I really hope this is addressed at some point, but I'm only 13 minutes in and you've already described Puerto Ricans as immigrants at least five times. Puerto Ricans are not immigrants, they're U.S. citizens. Yeah, that's basically our bad. Um, and we were aware of that and mentioned it in the next episode, but we should have been more clear about that. I, I do think West Side Story is a story of immigration, but immigration within uh, national borders uh, versus immigration from one country to another. And that is a distinction worth noting. So our apologies for that. Uh, I also avoid it. Apology for me uh, um, saying that Frank Borsage directed uh, All Quiet on the Western Front. It is, of course, 
Lewis Milestone. And, you know, if anyone unsubscribed because of my horrific error, uh, I apologize for that as well. So, no, we, we really, you know, we don't mind. They won't know because they've unsubscribed. Keith. <laughs> that's they, true. They that's won't true. know. Uh, they, uh, we don't mind being, and just sort of, you know, speaking. Blindly. I'm out of here. I'm a, I'm a serious Lewis Milestone head. I can't believe this slander. Well, just, just generally, you know, we don't mind being called out on stuff. We make mistakes and we hate it and we cringe. And, uh, you know, if we, if we're, if we're upsetting you in some way, uh, let us know. And if it's a, you know, if it's nonsense, you know, we'll just ignore you, but, but that's not nonsense. That's, that's very much worth addressing. Uh, so we also received a voicemail, uh, that kind of falls into the anything else in the world of film category from a listener named Adam, and we will play it for you now. Hey, Next Picture Show gang. I am Adam, and I'm just listening to the bonus episode on the Shrek diversity, the controversy that will apparently never die. And I started to think about basically how much of that controversy and other quote-unquote controversies do you think stem from the rise of fan sites um, being treated as, I guess, a, a new type of film criticism? Because when I, I think of, like, film criticism, like, I think of, like, something that, that Scott does, where you see a movie, you give an honest opinion of it, and then you kind of move on from there. Whereas with something specifically related to like the MCU, there are like just so many fan dedicated sites that people just tend to ignore film criticism in general because they can go to that space to a, just have their opinion on the movie validated or B have you know, things about it explained that maybe they didn't understand. I, basically, all this is a long-winded way of saying, how much do you believe that, you know, fan-specific sites have hurt film criticism uh, over the years, or if they have at all? Uh, well, Scott, you get called out by name in this voicemail. Uh, so let's let's see you go first. Fans, were they a mistake? <laughs> I think they definitely probably they definitely were a mistake. It what was that that was I guess one of the interesting things about the Shrek traversy from my end was ju- was not simply a disagreement in terms of uh, an opinion, but but a, a shock really that this opinion could be could exist and be expressed. Like why why would you do something like that? Are you doing are you trolling me by uh, saying that this this film that we all understand is great clearly is not great i mean this is this this is clearly a, a bid for attention and and of course that's not really what criticism is you know you, you really it, you know and it's and it's nothing when i get these kind of anniversary assignments i'm just trying to break things down and be as honest as i can you know about the, the thing I'm, I'm writing about i mean oftentimes it's something that I love like Clute or something, but even, um, uh, you know, my most recent one on, uh, escape from New York, the John Carpenter film. I mean, that's not my favorite John Carpenter film. And, and there are, there are some notes in that essay that are, that kind of try to put that in a little perspective, say that, well, it does it, the, the world building aspect of that film is a little bit more interesting than the action part of that film. But with Shrek, it was just, you know, I think there's, I think there is something to what Adam is saying here, maybe about fan sites, but just about fandom in general that doesn't re- that where, where there is a, an understanding of what something is 
criticism isn't really a part of that. You know, I mean, unpacking things is maybe a part of that. Uh, looking for Easter eggs, you know, obsessing over something that that's a part of fan culture. But but to really sort of, you know, allow for dissent, that's not something that that uh, you experience as, as, as much. And, and when you get it, uh, the reaction to it is vitriolic. We could just go on about those toxic fan cultures that are ruining things <laughs> like like you know it takes a i'm you know i'm wearing a star wars t-shirt as i, re- I record this i got a <laughs> ralph mccory print behind me but but boy do i really hate star wars sometimes <laughs> because of what's happened with it and it just you know i don't know the amplification of the worst voices uh, around these things is 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 not helpful to me um you know, as someone who, who I don't, I just, just not, not in general. I, I just, just not, I'm not always a fan. I mean, is it true of music as well? Steve, do you, do you run into certain sort of similar issues there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's been a bunch of issues with, uh, music critics writing, not even negative reviews, but just not properly effusive enough <laughs> reviews of, albums by huge pop stars and then you know you look online and they're being doxxed and you know there's people just saying terrible things about them online and obviously that's terrible i you know i think any critic that's going to be attacked in that way uh it's a terrible thing and i obviously speak out against that i i will say however that i think you know speaking of like scott's piece for instance i really liked your piece on on shrek i thought it was really funny above anything else. It was funny and I thought it was also well argued. I also feel like with a piece like that, there is going to be blowback to a piece like that because you're writing about a very popular film and you're you're also dealing with a situation in social media like where people can respond with like very minimal effort. Like how it's not hard to send a tweet to somebody. Yeah, or, or minimal effort like not reading it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Where really they're just reacting to the tweet probably or the headline. Mm-hmm. Oh, most certainly. And and they're going to react against that, but and if you're in the center of that, and I've been in the center of that too. I've been, you know, attacked by people who didn't like something I I wrote. Um I do think that as a critic it, it is still worth staking out that position because at the very least scott has now created uh, a position where like someone has said this out loud and now the next person who says that out loud is not going to have as hard of a time saying that as scott did because he's kind of staked out the thing of like i said this movie is a piece of garbage and other people now are going to say it's a piece of garbage and and probably the next person that says it is not going to get as much negative reaction and you know that doesn't make it any easier for scott but i think if you look at this as like an ongoing critical discussion it does i think speak to uh you know that it's good to stake out these positions even if you have to be like the you know the person in saving private ryan you know who's like the first onto the beach like (laughs) scott took the boat in the head but the person behind him maybe they get on the beach and they get the storm normandy because really i don't know what the solution to this is i mean we live in a social media world things are like this are going to happen but i think as critics you you have to have enough perspective to say like well this is gonna suck for maybe 24 hours or 36 hours but i'll get through Mm -hmm. it it's not that big of a deal hopefully um and you just have to deal with it because because again i don't know what the alternative is other than saying 
well, maybe people just don't care about reviews anymore, you know? Because at the very least, you could say, well, people cared about Scott's review, you know, and that's a good thing for critics. They cared enough about <laughs> it to get irritated by it. So that's a good thing. But I don't know. It's just like the world we live in now. I don't know how we get around it otherwise. I mean, I'm not sure that any of this is engaging with what the actual question was, which is yeah. not which is not is toxic fandom bad or is fandom toxic, uh, but was more about like the rise of, of fan sites where people just go to say, I loved this movie. Did you love this movie? Wasn't it great when this thing happened in this movie or the rise of like all of these, you know, kind of petty articles that uh, just exist to 27 things you are way too stupid to notice in Shrek, which inevitably 20 of which will be things that were patently obvious to everybody who saw Shrek. Uh, and I don't know why those kinds of articles, why people tolerate them. There's a lot of that kind of, of journalism that I just don't understand. And given the sites that I've worked at uh, over the past couple of years, I've, I've kind of had to have it explained to me by younger viewers. I think for all of us, this just isn't our generation. And fan sites speak to a way of engaging with things that we didn't grow up with and, and that we don't understand. When I worked at The Verge, they would periodically make me write articles that were effectively, here's what happens in the uh, post-credit scene of such and such a movie. And they called it service journalism. And I didn't care. Like, my feeling is if you want to know what happens at the end of the movie, watch the movie. I don't particularly care for explainers. I don't really understand why anybody would want to watch reaction videos. Like, a lot of that I just don't get. But when I when I said that, you know, when I wrote a piece on uh, the post credit scene in some movie or the other, I had like... 15 of my coworkers say, yeah, I saw that you wrote that article because I was sitting in the movie uh, when the credits started and I Googled, is there a post-credit scene that I should stay for? They were <laughs> like, every single one of them, it had been useful to them. It had, it, they had made use of it. And in the same kind of way, like the, the way that fan sites engage with culture is not necessarily the way any of us think of as the ideal way to, uh, to engage with culture. But I do think that you have to separate out that kind of, Hey, I love all Marvel movies. Don't you kind of reaction, which is just enthusiasm and often youthful and inexperienced enthusiasm. Uh, from the kind of people that come gunning for Scott because they read half of the headline of that Shrek piece, they think they know what it's all about and they think they have the right to uh, to tell him he's stupid. You know, I don't have a lot of patience with people who don't in, don't read the article but think they have a, a right to scream at you about it and think they have a right to tell you you're wrong when they don't even know what you said. I, I don't have any patience for that kind of engagement with culture. But I just don't want to point a, a big, broad gun at at fan sites and and fandom and enthusiasm and say it's all like that. You know, I, I think when you do that, you're running into a lot of the same problems that every other aspect of culture is facing. Like, why is this one idiot who's the loudest voice in the room uh, allowed to dominate culture and, and tell us what it is? Like, all of the other people on that site are just having fun with stuff they enjoy or are just looking for somebody to to share something with or are authentically appreciating that somebody like smarter and more observant than them or at least with an advanced screener that they can frame by frame through uh found some stuff in loki that's comic book related that they never would have known about i don't think that that's fundamentally a problem i think that the people that want more serious criticism 
we'll go and find it. And that's always been true. Like we've always gotten letters that have said, you, you wrote this piece about what's wrong with this movie. Stop thinking so much. Turn your brain off. You're not meant to think about this movie. You're just meant to enjoy it. And none of us have ever engaged with that argument. And there are people that do and people that don't. That hasn't changed. It's just that we get to hear more of those voices. But I, I don't think fan sites in and of them, themselves are the problem. There's something about the internet that makes everyone feel like they're really special and maybe even persecuted for liking what they like. And it encourages you to find these communities like a fan site where you feel like you can go and there's other people who are there who are into what you like. and you can finally feel that like you're not alone for for being into this thing even if it is something that like millions of other people are into and that dynamic also creates this impression i think that like critics are bullies and that like we're you know picking on people who like things and if you point out to them that this thing that they love is not perfect and you're making an argument for well this could be better or this is flawed in this way and it's almost like this persecution thing that people feel where, yeah, like the, where like the, like the, the critic who's maybe just trying to be thoughtful is all of a sudden in this position, like from their point of view of ruining something that they love. And that creates this thing where people want to get revenge almost on, on critics for that. Uh, like I like this thing and now you've maybe not like it. And now I'm upset and I'm going to lash out at you for that. And uh, I don't know, there's, there's just something in social media that creates this thing in people's brains. And I think we've probably all been susceptible to it. Even like some of us, I'm sure at times have felt that way where, you just get in this reactionary pose almost that if you take a step back, it's like unreasonable to feel that way. But in the heat of the moment, you just lash out at people. And I don't know how to resolve that. I mean, because we're all critics, we're all writers. And I don't think anyone, I don't think any one of us would feel that if you write a piece that's critical of something that you're and somehow trying to dissuade people from liking it. You know, but that seems to be the mentality that people have that you're almost like attacking them personally. And uh, I don't know, that just seems really strong. And across, you know, and no matter we're writing about film or music or television, whatever it is, yeah, it's just part of the, the narcotic of social media. I think it's like a us versus them mentality that can really screw over critics in certain situations, I think. I mean, I think all of us just have gotten to a point of understanding that you have to have thick skin to make it in this business. And you're talking to the people who will listen and, and engage. You know, we we put up a piece at uh, Polygon that I spent a lot of a lot of time on about Luca and how Luca, the director of Luca, said that it's it's not a gay film. Um, these characters are not gay. It's not a gay story. But uh, the writer went through and said, like, there there are like 20 different tropes used in this movie that are all gay coming of age narrative tropes. And we had people that engaged thoughtfully and in depth and with uh, like great coherence and, and cogency on all sorts of different sides of the spectrum. And then we had people that responded to the tweet with, you know, lol, you're dumb, like that kind of thing. And, you know, obviously the bigots showed up. 
And you can look at people's responses and tell exactly how much they're worth engaging with. You can tell when somebody hasn't read the article. You can tell when somebody's making a bad faith argument. Ultimately, we continue to do the criticism kind of for ourselves. We're expressing thoughts that we've had. And, you know, kind of secondarily, just like the people on fan sites, we're talking to the people that want to engage on the same level that we do. We're talking to the people who want to think about culture and where it comes from and and how it works. And when Scott has a million people come screaming down his door uh, to tell him in misspelled words that he needs to die in a fire, uh, that is unfortunate and sad and and frustrating but he was never writing for those people and he he knows better than to worry about what those people think uh because they're just not the people that he was talking to and they're also not the people that are listening it's just unfortunate that they think it's important that he stop and listen to them when he, they did not bother to listen to him they didn't do their homework anyway yeah. uh yeah it was that was all water off a duck's back so i worry that people are not uh, aware of what criticism is and what it's for. <laughs> Worry that that's not that that's not uh, that conversation. Those conversations are not happening in classrooms. So, uh, that, that, but uh, yeah, that's about all on this rec diversity. Well, we know that that description does not match anyone listening to this <laughs> podcast. Uh, so no, we, appreciate, we appreciate it when our when our listeners, our very thoughtful listeners, write in and share their thoughts or their recommendations or call in. We, we would like that, too. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. And that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll look at Summer of Soul, a document of a less mythologized musical happening. Look for that episode next Tuesday, or you can subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. If you want to hear it without ads and while surrounded by an extra Next Picture Show written and recorded content, come support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at, at nextpictureshow.net and follow us on Twitter at, at NextPicturePod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, nope, not going to end this with a brown acid joke. It's too obvious. No. All right, you know what? Just as a PSA, let's just, once and for all, don't take the brown acid. We are stars. We are dust. We are the beard. You know And we've got to get ourselves back to the dark.